Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? This is Classified. This is Mocha Only. This is Sean Price. Yeah, Ghostface Killer. This is Quake Matthews. What's up, my brother Ali? Fight Diggy, Tribe Called Quest. Eloquent, man. What up, Styles Peter Ghost. This is Ab Soul. This is K.O. And you listening to the Come Up Show, where that feel-good music lives. This is the show that you come up on, yeah. This is the spot that you come up strong. Hey, welcome to the Come Up Show podcast. My name is Chetto, host and founder of the Come Up Show, where each and every Wednesday, we bring you a brand new conversation that we think that you might be interested in and today on our podcast is ron gilmore jr he is a keyboardist he's a producer and he plays in j cole's band and he's worked on various dreamville's projects like 2014 forest hill drive bosses too high to riot and so much more and he has a brand new debut album out came out earlier this year called maturation of little ron in our conversation today though we talked about how Ron Gilmore Jr., growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the country music capital, shaped him as a musician. How he got the chance to play as Lauren Hill's keyboardist, his transition from Nashville to NYC, and so much more. So many jewels and gems in this conversation. I'm excited for you to listen to. Let's go. Please introduce yourself. Uh, Ron, Ronald Gilmore. Baddest motherfucker you ever know. <laughs> and doing a quick search on you, going to your Instagram, is Instagram caption, it's Ron Gilmore Jr. I was a hater, dot, dot, dot. I'm Ron now. <laughs> what does that mean? Is, were you a hater? Did you hate a lot and <laughs> before you found your passion and then you're, you, you're a lover now? Oh, or what, what's that about? It's really not that deep. <laughs> I, I thought I so. How, I love how people try to make it like a deep thing. <laughs> Honestly, I, it's kind of crazy. The story yeah. is kind of, I'm, I'm going to tell the truth because yeah. I'm just be truthful. It's kind of yeah. creepy. Yeah. So I was going on Instagram because I had a girlfriend that was on Instagram and I wasn't on Instagram. So I went on Instagram as like another person. Mm-hmm. Like a like a background person, like a fake account, like a fake account. And I what I used to do though is I used to go and like my closest friends, I would go and hate on the page, like they would put something. Then I just put like that shit's whack. <laughs> I just hate. <laughs> on this. I would just troll them. I would troll my homies. Yeah. And so like that's what happened. Um, yeah. And that's how. And that's that's what I did. Then when I actually decided to like be about this Instagram life, I was like, okay. Let me just change it, and that's what I said. Like I was a hater. Now I'm wrong. So like, it, it, it sounds like it's a real deep thing, but it's yeah. not. It wasn't. It's actually mad creepy. It's funny though. Like, what kind of things were you hating? Like, what kind of picture were you hating on your friends? What were you saying? I don't not have like musician <laughs> friends. And okay. They would just try to like post pictures of themselves, and I'd be yeah. like, I'd be like, man, I've never seen somebody so ugly or something like that. I would just troll them, and I would just talk just all oh, that swag. Oh, you suck. I would just fuck with him and just troll him and like one like i had conversations with him and i was just trolling on the conversations i would just win like a troll it was terrible i was anti-instagram at the point though i was just i really just did it honestly just to see what my girl was doing <laughs> that's, that's the creepy part i like i like that story it's funny it's a great way to start our conversation so you are from nashville tennessee Yes. Where if you go to Travel Advisor and you see the top 10 things to do in Nashville, Tennessee, one of them is going to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. It's obviously, you know, where Country Music Headquarters. Mm-hmm. So I want to know how that shaped you as a as a person, as a musician, as a producer to who you are today. First of all, let's talk about Country Music in Nashville. Country Music. Good, quick question. Why does everybody hate on Country Music? 
I don't think everyone hates on country music. I think yeah. everyone in the circles that we're in hates on country music, but mm-hmm. it's a big world out there. Mm-hmm. And country music definitely makes more money than rap music. It definitely mm-hmm. makes more money than R&B. Mm-hmm. Probably makes more money than both of them combined because the audience is just bigger and they support that music way more. Very loyal. Very loyal. Yeah. So, like, we might hate on it, but mm-hmm. it's country music that I like. Like, old country music, you know? Like, mm-hmm. But country music in Nashville, right... I think it makes like one third of the money that comes through Nashville is like for country music. It's, mm-hmm. it's generated by music. Mm-hmm. And so the city supports that a lot. Mm-hmm. And growing up, that actually shaped me as a player because when you do these country sessions, the music is very pristine and the players are really good. And so what happens is it's a lot of players from all over from everywhere that come to Nashville to get a job and to live a lifestyle of a musician that can play and support his family and support his life and have a good life. And so it's a lot of musicians, like tons. And it's a lot of chances to play and be musical and grow. And I grew up in a very musical environment. Like all my friends are musicians. I always went out to, you know, I was gigging for, you know, since I was like 16. So Hmm. I've been, you know, I started when I was like 15. And I, I was playing in, you know, high school band and shit. And I was going out gigging, though. And I feel like the experience that I had with doing that was like a one-of-a-kind thing. And I think country music lends itself to Nashville in that aspect. The other side of it is, like, the fact that R&B and hip-hop in Nashville is still to this day kind of an underground thing. Like, it's a lot of R&B and hip-hop in Nashville. It's a lot of black music or whatever it's a lot of jazz like I was a straight up jazz cat in Nashville at some point and it it was a scene to support that because it's a lot of jazz musicians out there and I don't know that it gets swept under the rug more so but it just doesn't generate as much money as country music does so it doesn't get as much support from the city you know, it doesn't get as much support. But, like I said, even in it not getting as much support as country, there's still a scene for it. It's still an R&B scene in Nashville. It's a jazz scene in Nashville, you know. It might not be as dominant as country music, but it's still there. And that shaped me and molded me a lot to be, like, the musician that I am and the kind of player that I am, you know. And, you know, like like I said, country music kind of attributes a lot to that because it brings a lot of musicians. But, you know, like, people always say, like, oh, yeah, it's country music. They always ask me, like, it's country music, but it's a scene in Nashville, mm-hmm. you know. And it's some of the, I say some of the best musicians in the world because you can really find people there that can read music and then go and play, like, a jazz gig. And then go and play like a classical gig, and go and play like a salsa gig, and you—that's the kind of environment that's in Nashville. If you want to be a musician and you're not major and you want to survive, mm-hmm. you have to be able to play all this shit. Like I had to at some point be able to play all this to like survive and pay rent. Like I used to have to play at church on Sunday, and then I'll play fucking jazz club <laughs> on Saturday, and I'll have jazz gigs in the week, and I would do all kind of like different things. I remember I did a play one time. I've done all mm. kind of, you know, all kind of gigs in Nashville. So it's a great training ground. It's the fundamentals, and at the end of the day, music does not discriminate. 
It doesn't discriminate music itself to music play. It does not. The yeah. industry does. Yeah, the music. Yeah, the industry yeah. can definitely discriminate. Yeah. Like, and you know, country music is kind of funny with that because, yeah, obviously. you know, because the top guys that are doing country music as far as session plays are naturally like white guys. Obviously. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because they've, they've been doing it from the jump. But it's like, it's kind of the reason why I had to move is because I felt like it was kind of like I had reached some kind of ceiling. Mm-hmm. And being in Nashville, and I knew I needed like to be somewhere where things were happening a little bit more. Like it was just mm-hmm. more of industry, more people, and like just a more livelier scene. Mm-hmm. And I knew I had like I knew I was going to be able to live like those top tier session guys in Nashville. Like they make money. Like I don't know how much money they make per se, mm-hmm. but I know that they like make nice money. It's lot. It's a lot of nice money to be made in Nashville mm-hmm. if you're a top tier session player. It's only a certain number of guys that are going to get that slot, and that's. And once you get that slot as a musician, you don't want it. You're not going to leave it. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you're fortunate enough to stay alive, that could be a sixty, seventy year career. You know. You talked about hitting the glass ceiling, which is perfect because you went to NYC, New York City, uh, and there's a lot in that story as well but I want to talk about this little small tidbit that I want to give to creatives and artists is the power of connecting with people so when you went with NYC you try to meet a lot of people you try to talk to as many people as you can please tell me the value of that because I feel like it's kind of being lost in 2016 where kids think that they just need an Instagram or Twitter account and Mm. they're good they could spam people but they don't have to actually physically be present somewhere so tell me the value of actually shaking hand in hand and, and, and getting to know people face to face. Well, I mean, it's just the value. It's really beyond words, honestly. Mm-hmm. Because moving to New York did so much for me as a musician, as far as confidence, as far as being social and meeting people, as far as being in a city like New York. Like, it did so much for me. Like, it really showed me, like, like I can look back on myself before that and see, like, a totally different person. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I know I was a totally different person. When I moved to New York, it changed me. And some, maybe some for the better, some for the worse, but it definitely helped me get to where I am now. It was, like, it was, it, it was, it was critical. <laughs> you know, it was mm-hmm. very important that I have that experience in New York. Because, you know, I moved up there and I had very low expectations. Really? Because when people think NYC, the Big Apple, they think your dreams are there. When I was in Nashville, I knew I was good and I knew I was getting to a point where I was like finding my sound and getting to really understand myself as a player. I was 25 years old. Mm -hmm. And so when I moved to New York, like I remember people from Nashville just telling me like, you know, it's a lot of players in New York that are good and a lot of players that are better than you, like... You know, I went up there with that expectation. Like I used to YouTube guys from New York, and I remember running up on two guys in particular. One guy was Corey Henry, another guy was uh, Travis Sales, and oh my god, it's they're so amazing, and it like humbled me because they're way they're way better players than I am, and it made me like be like, well, man, I gotta like step my shit up. <laughs> you know, I have to like, I have to at least be a little bit of that good if I'm going to get working work in New York. Because it made me think that every guy in New York was like that. 
specifically and just shortly what were they better than you at and what like what are you talking about can you be specific because you're a keyboardist or, or what is it it was just like the sounds that they that they choose like the chords and progressives that they were doing was just mm-hmm. it was just really fresh mm-hmm. and they had amazing dexterity like they could play really fast and they can switch up styles too like they just had perfect dexterity perfect attack just in the way that they played and approached the shit and the sound was just fresh it was just something that I've never ever heard before mm-hmm. when I was living in Nashville not to say it wasn't guys like that because it was definitely guys that were like that but not everybody wasn't like that mm-hmm. you know and so it just blew me away it made me like I said it made me feel like I had to step my shit up so mm-hmm. when I moved up to New York it was just low expectations oh, I was okay. just I was just like Dope. it's gonna take me a year to get work that's how I felt and so mm-hmm. when I went up there I went up there on a gig. It, I was playing with a band at the time, and they moved me into their house, like, out of just the kindness of their hearts. Mm-hmm. What was the name of the, of the band? It was Soul Kiss. Soul it was uh, Tim Tim Dillinger, Dave Sosa, and Kara Alfred. It was okay. from the bottom of their hearts. Mm-hmm. It was amazing guys. And I, I knew Tim Dillinger from Nashville. I worked with him in Nashville. Mm-hmm. He moved to New York before I did. And I went up there and worked with them mm-hmm. before I moved. And then it just came up like, well, you know, you should. They felt like I wanted to move, mm-hmm. and at the time I did. I wanted to move, but I didn't want to move to New York. Mm-hmm. And they were just like, well, you could just come stay with us. And I was just like, okay. Mm-hmm. And it just happened, just like that. And from that band, check this out. From that band, I met Nate Jones. He was playing bass for them because mm-hmm. he was a New York musician, and he he was like the third guy that they had went through too. Mm-hmm. He was playing bass for them. Nate Jones went to school with Elite at Sunny Purchase and that's how they knew each other so from that move, from them moving me up there and working with them I met Nate Jones and that's how I met Cole like you know that's essentially how I met Cole through Elite? or through Nate Jones oh, Nate okay. Jones was in the band he knew Elite he okay. took me he, he brought me to a session with Elite okay. and I played for Elite I played a session with Elite mm-hmm. Elite was like blown away mm-hmm. I remember him telling me he was like oh I've never heard nobody play like that that gave me the comment I was like really? like mm-hmm. Really? You never? I was like, okay, so I'm making you know get work, and that was really soon after I moved to New York. That was very, that happened really quick. Mm-hmm. Cause I think I moved in February. I met Cole by like April. Mm-hmm. So, and that's how I did it. It was through the guy that I knew in Nashville. He moved to New York, started the band. I came up to New York to play for the band. They moved me up there. I met Nate Jones, and he had already knew Elite, and that's how that whole thing happened. So, they moved me to New York, and I remember. I was, when I first moved up there, it was in February, it was cold, it was the first time I ever seen like eight feet of snow, Mm -hmm. and I was going out, I was like, I gotta go out every night, and that's what I did, I went out every night to every open mic jam session or everything that I knew about to go to, Mm -hmm. and I just hit up people that I knew in New York, and I just tried to get work, I was like, sometimes I was like the third call for a gig, but I would do it, you know, Mm -hmm. I would show up and do the gig. There's one story that I want to know, specifically when I think Tim and they, he was moving out or whatever, and you had to find your own spot. So you went to church, you put a $100 bill in an envelope. I want, I want to know that story. Please tell me about that story, how it led to being Lauren Hill's keyboardist. Through Nate Jones, too. Yeah. I, I was playing for Nate Jones. He had his own open mic, and I met Lauren Hill's MD mm-hmm. at the time. It's James Rouse. Mm-hmm. He was like, you should audition for Lauren. And I was like, no. <laughs> and, you know, he was he insistent. And I think I was like, you know, I'll just come out and do it because I didn't think I was going to get the gig. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I had I had got a church gig. I had found, like, a church gig, and I was playing there every week. And it was at St. John's and uh, Rockaway in Queens. I was playing out there, 
and I was like paying, you know, I pay my, I believe in paying tithes, and so I, you know, did that while I was playing there. I remember Tim, they were moving out in July, and what had happened was when I went to the first Lauryn Hill like audition, she didn't want me to play for her. She was, she didn't, she wasn't fucking with me, <laughs> and so I was, it was like whatever. Mm-hmm. And so then, I remember that was like on a Monday or Tuesday, they were moving out like in the next. Friday or some shit like that. So that was a Tuesday. They was moving out in two weeks, like the next Friday. And I was like, damn, I'm going to have to find a place to live. And I mean, I was going to church and I went to the audition like that Tuesday and Wednesday. Actually, I missed the first audition because I was late and I had to do a gig. And so I just missed it. And then I made the second one. I went on a Wednesday and made the second one. She didn't fuck with me. I went to church that Sunday night, I just put like my, my last hundred and like the tithe offering. I put it in the envelope and I wrote on it like place to live. And I put the envelope in and I was just, you know, whatever. It's a faith thing. What happened was that Sunday, that night, I got a call like, you got the Lauryn Hill gig. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't think she wanted me to do it. And it was like, nah, you got the gig. You got to come Monday and you got to be prepared to stay there like stay there until we leave out for this gig and I was like wow and so and then during that time some kind of weird way I did a gig with a guy who knew a guy who helped me find like a place to stay and it was you know it was soon thereafter but that whole time when I was in lieu of finding a place to stay I just stayed at Lauren had this big house in Jersey and we all just stayed there and rehearsed and I just stayed there at this fucking house, and I was just chilling wow. until I could, until I fi- I got the news that I had found a place to live, mm-hmm. and I just put all of my extra shit at that place to live because I couldn't move in yet because they still had a guy that was staying there, mm-hmm. and he was moving out after I would leave for tour. So I just put all my shit. I just stored it at their house, and then I went back to Lauren's house and stayed there, and then we left out on tour, mm-hmm. and then shit, and I was gone. <laughs> I was amazing. yeah. It's a great story. Uh, the album, your debut album, The Maturation of Little Ron, came out April of this year. Why was that important for you when you're a producer for the whole Dreamville team, for you to get that project out? And what was it like for you to put this body of work out to the peoples? It was uh, it was relieving after I honestly got it done. But honestly, I started writing late. Like, I started writing, like, kind of this year, mm-hmm. a little bit of last year. And I started working on an album before like two years ago and I couldn't get nowhere with it because I didn't know what I wanted to do because I wasn't writing then when I started writing like it kind of just all came together like I had a, some of the tracks like early like some of the tracks are really old like two years old like some of them I had wrote a little bit to some of them and never finished them and then I just picked them back up and then what it really popped off for me was when I went to Nashville and I just stayed there for like a week and I got to the studio for like a good year. I had it for a week. And every day I had just someone, like another person, everybody that was on the album, mm-hmm. they just came to a session. I just invited them and they just came and we did the song in that session. Like some of the words I had to rewrite, some of the verses I had to redo, like some of the songs I had to redo. And But every night it just worked out. It just kept working out. And then at the end I had an album. Like I had a good what nine songs mm-hmm. and like at the end of a week after all those ideas and just the collaborations worked out and everything just worked out you know um, I just had an album I had did Cash Rules with Kaz it was 
late 2015 when we was living in L.A. And Kaza came over to the house. And he just laid down that verse. And then Quick was already over there because he was working with Boss. He just sung on it. And then that shit came together. And I was like, wow, I got like a complete thing. And after that, like I just refined it. We mixed it. And then we just put it out. The hardest part was trying to figure out a way to, for me to put it out with no one knowing who I was. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, I'm like, who, no one knows who I am. So I felt like we just do a small little Instagram shits and announce it and I put it out. And so, yeah. And so it was actually really fun to put it out. So far, all the reception has been really good. And so, you know, it's been received really well. And I didn't really think about how it was going to be received, you know. Mm. The thing is, I just wanted people to know that, like, this is not just some, I just produced the tracks. Like, I actually, I wrote it. Like, the only one I didn't write was the Mario Dion song. And that's his song. I just just played on it. And so, but I wrote it. I want people to know that I, I really wrote it. And, like, I produced it, you know, and I played on it. And I, these people that helped me, they actually... Really in Nashville, that is what really shaped the album too, because they came and they added their own flavor to the songs too, and helped me write some of the songs. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted that to be the thing. That's why I wanted to put it out because I wanted to. Be, I don't know if it's any, if it's that many people that's doing that. Mm-hmm. It's like writing and producing it and playing it, and putting everything together. You know, and having a really full project that's doing something like that. So I wanted to be a person that's doing that. You mm-hmm. know, in this time, in this era. You know. So uh, just wrapping up our interview, uh, there's one quote that you said, you know that you can't do everything yourself, that you need help. Mm-hmm. Asking for help sometimes requires uh, you feel maybe vulnerable, you feel as, you know, as people, as human beings. Sometimes we, don't, we want to be all tough, I can do everything by myself. Yeah. But tell me about being humble enough to say, yo, I need help. It's just about letting that ego die and just, <clears throat> look, just look at it like it's really not a big deal. It's a yes or no, like... That isn't, that's not going to shape nothing. Like, you never know the situation that other people are in when you ask them to do something. Mm-hmm. They might be in a situation where they can do it, and they might be in a situation where they can't. That has nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. It has everything to do with them. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. People keep the attention on themselves when asking for something and not considering that that other person has shit, too. You're asking because you need something. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're in dire straits. Mm-hmm. You're in a situation. They might be in a situation, too, where they can't help you out. Mm-hmm. Oh, they might not want to. Like, who gives a fuck? Like, just let it go. People are taking it personally when it's not about you. People are letting their egos. Like, they're not letting their ego die enough to be humble enough to ask for something. And they're not letting their ego die enough to be considerate of the other person enough to -hmm. think that just because you ask this person for something doesn't mean that they can do it. And that Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with you, whether they can or cannot. Mm -hmm. Everything to do with them. Mm Mm-hmm. You know? And and that's it. Like, it's a yes or no. And at that point, Mm -hmm. it's a yes or no. And you keep it moving. Don't put your talent before your work ethic. You want to work way beyond your talent level. Please tell me about that. This teacher in, in college, Stephen Farsley, he told me one day, he, he, had, he, had, he had to you know, retire. He told, that one of the last things he told me was, because he knew like I was a subpar reader, and, <laughs> like, as far as reading, but I can play. Like I was just the most talented. Oh, you're talking about music reading. Music okay, reading. Okay. I, was, I was a subpar, like, no, nah, not reading. <laughs> That's why I laughed. <laughs> no, it, it was, you know, just as far as music, like reading music, yeah. you know, and I, it was a struggle for me to really get up to a level where I can read professionally. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he was just like, don't, don't let your talent get in the way of like you learn how to do that. Like you learn how to do that. Like learn it. And he just like hammered that into me. And it just, it made me realize what he was talking about. Like, a lot of times I would get lazy with my talent and let my talent kind of, like, just lead me everywhere. And just because I was a good player, like, mm-hmm. and not really try to work hard at it. And one time I got humbled 
And one time I was I wasn't on top of it and I got embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And that just made me be like, nope, never again. <laughs> never I'm again. going to just work hard. I'm going to work harder than everybody mm-hmm. to do the things I got to do. I'm going to do the shit that the other guy's not going to do. And I'm going to be, and I have this amazing, like, God-given talent. So why not? Like, why not refine it and make it as good as possible? You know, why not? Like, if you have it, why not do that? Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of us do that. A lot of us, a lot of people don't want to work. Like, you got to work. You can't just post fucking photos on Instagram like you can't just you can't just be you can't just have an internet presence and think you're going to have real life effect like some people can but you got to think about how long they're going to stay in the game too you know like you got to have real life fans you got to go out there and meet the people and like shake hands it's like Mm -hmm. politicking you know, you're really politicking. Like, moving to New York is like a politics. You know, I, I had to meet mad people. I met mad people. And those people, like, I, I, those those connections that I made, like, helped me get to where I am today. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's what you have to keep doing. You have to, like, be a person of the people if you want to make change. You got to work. That takes fucking work. Like, regardless if you're a leader or not. Regardless if I'm a leader or not, mm-hmm. I'm going to work harder than everybody. Regardless. If it, you know, so it's just that's always going to have me in a position to where I'm going to be valued. Even more than myself, you know what I'm saying. Like I would do the shit for free. I do. I would do all this for free, honestly. Mm-hmm. But I know I need money, and I feel like my work ethic is what you're paying me for, not my talent. Because you can't pay me for that. Definitely. You can't. There's not a price tag on my talent. Mm-hmm. Nobody can pay me for that. But you can pay me for my work, though. And so. Every single week, it seems like we're losing another legend, mm-hmm. especially in 2016. And you said that we need new grades. We need new people that we can look up to. After all these legends are going away, man, like, you know, is this... A new generation. It was legends before them. Yeah. And legends before them. And legends before them. It's just that, that's just how it goes. Like, people got to die. They're still real people. So people die, you know. Legend or not, you still got to get up out of here. You know, and it has to, that has to make way for a new generation. We need that. Well, we don't need people to die, like, I, I guess. I don't want to say that, but the truth is you need to make way for, like, new people because I'm, I'm tired of hearing people oh that sounds like Michael Jackson or that sounds like that sounds like Prince or that sounds like it's time to be someone else like new identities like some else that we can relate to somebody else you know mm-hmm. something else that can just change our lives and mm-hmm. change how we look at music and the world and shit mm-hmm. and I think we're right at the point where like that's being created mm-hmm. like somebody's gonna it's gonna be people that come out of this generation as much as people like to hate on this generation for me, like musically because of all the bullshit but it's a lot of nice music and it's a lot of great people that's gonna come out of this generation and be those next legends like mm-hmm. guaranteed definitely that's what I'm trying to do so you were in the motherland recently I believe South Africa and um as an African American, a lot of African Americans don't even have passports. Like they don't get out out of the the whole their block. Going to the motherland, what kind of effect did that have? On, I don't know if it was your first time or not, but like, did it have any type of effect going to Africa? Uh, yeah, just seeing all those, just seeing all those black people and just seeing another way of living. Like I went to Soweto, mm. and they was having church outside, and I thought that was like it was touching. It was like just to see like that kind of scenery. Mm. Honestly, man, it's funny. The first time I went to Africa, I just complained because it was my first time leaving the States. Okay. And so I was just like, oh, I want to be back in America where we've got regular shit. And I didn't really get to connect as much as I like to. Mm-hmm. But it's time, you know, as the more I learn about myself, the more easier it is to go to places like that and connect. I think what it was is 
Like I don't feel no way when I'm there. Like I feel safe mm-hmm. when I'm in Africa. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. feel safe, yeah. yeah, I feel like I can walk and be amongst the people and be cool. Like I feel like I'm with my people. Like, and I think that's the biggest thing. I don't feel like it's no overwhelmingly great thing. I feel like I'm at home. You know, I feel like safe. It's a very great feeling. So everybody should go. Every black person should go. Should definitely go mm-hmm. at some point in your life. You have to go to really get in touch with like that feeling of comfortability. Like let go of all the shit that you hear on the media. Like mm-hmm. really look at the. If you once you look at the people and you see how people are, you let go of all that shit. And I think that is what's needed in our community: the feeling of being comfortable around your own people. Like mm-hmm. we don't have that. You know. Mm-hmm. Ron, for the people who are listening, who listen to this whole interview, what is one last thought that you want to share with them? Do what you love. Be diligent and relentless and non-compromising and brave when doing what you love. Regardless of how much money you make, like, it'll pay off. Can I ask you about this quick thing about when you're doing what you love but the dollars are not coming in or you're broke or you're in debt and you're like, when am I going to make it? That have, person who's feeling that, what advice would you give? You gotta have faith. Like, I've been broke. I've been yeah. homeless. Yeah. But it's always worked out. Like, when I was at my lowest... And money don't make me, so I, I have not having money never ever made me feel bad. It was not being able to do the things I wanted to do that made me feel like it's a way when I was broke. Not having money, it just worked out, man. Like, you get broke, you, you find a way to get past it, you'll make money. Like, money will come. Money is easy. Money is a social, such an easy thing to make. Mm-hmm. But when you find, you have to be smart enough to find a way to make money from what you're doing. Like, that's the work part, is being diligent enough to be like, okay, how can I really make a living from this because mm-hmm. you have to and I think being down at your low is like that's the time when you should work the most you should be like I gotta work hard as fuck huh. that's what I did when I was broke I was like fuck it, I gotta do something I gotta fucking work I gotta do something I gotta go make something happen like whatever way I can do because it's always a way you can make shit happen like you can it's always a way it might not be the most comfortable way mm-hmm. but it's a way and as long as you got a way like there's no excuse why you can't make your dreams happen. Because you have a way. Like Everyone has a way. Mm-hmm. So I would say that. Just be diligent. Just fuck it. Just do it. Like, what are you going to die doing? Like a job? You're going to die doing a 9 to 5? You're going to die doing what you love? You're going to die at some point. You're not going to live forever. So dying do- I'd rather be dying doing what I love mm-hmm. than dying working some fucking 9 to 5. Exactly. Broke or not. And that's it. Like the homie Gary Vaynerchuk says, the riskiest thing that you could do is not doing what you love because you might be replaced. Yeah, you know what I mean? You always gonna be replaced doing that. You never be replaced doing what you love. Nice. You always be replaced working for somebody else. Hundred percent. Thank you very much for your time on the Come Up Show, my G. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ron Gilmore Jr inspirational guy he really wants you to take to do what you love and this is a guy that wishes people will do what they love and they pursue their dreams and yo one thing if i can ask from you you know we've been bringing you podcasts each and every wednesday a lot of value a lot of great conversation i know you haven't already because i'm the only one who's done this if you can go to itunes and leave a review and a rating on iTunes for the Come Up Show podcast. The link is in the description. All you got to do is click, hopefully give us four to five stars, leave a comment. It would really appreciate it because what it does is it increases our rankings on iTunes. 
which gets us more listeners. So I would really appreciate if the one thing I could ask from you is to leave a rating, a ranking, a comment on iTunes on the Come Up Show. That's all I have to ask. My name is Chetto. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next Wednesday. Peace. Peace.